Hello, this is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today, I'm speaking with Leah Prime. Leah is what the UFO community needs, an intellectual with a curious nature. She is also a wordsmith and an explorer of literature. Leah invites people to join her while she considers the phenomenon and more in exo-studies, book clubs, talk spaces, and so forth. Leah is also a member of Invisible Night School on YouTube, part of the Theoso... I'm going to say this wrong. I apologize. Theosophical Society. You're going to have to explain that one more. And is a data scientist. Welcome. Deb, thank you so much for having me this evening. I am just delighted to be here. Well, I'm excited because I didn't get a chance to sit down and talk with you um, when we were doing the conference. Um, and there's been so many times that we've just run into each other in New York and not really gotten to talk. It was so loud and crazy. So we're going to get to do that today. Um, so my first question, and this is one that seems to be a pressing issue for some people, but who is Leo Prime? Yes. So I love this, that this has become kind of a micro meme in the ufology community. Um, this all really started because um, I was not a visible member of the community until the last few months. And I began hosting Twitter spaces and trying to connect with people behind the scenes. And Linda Thompson, who's obviously a major figure in this community, caught wind of one of my Twitter spaces and responded, who is Leah Prime? Nobody I ask knows. And this was kind of the tweet that started it all. So from there, um, I've been asked if I'm Intel. I've been asked if I'm an op, um, which I, I, on, in some respects, that almost feels like kind of like a bat mitzvah in ufology, where like if somebody thinks you're, you're Intel or an op, you have to some degree impressed the people, the, the right people enough to think you're some sort of insidious force. But the reality is um, I'm just kind of a... Uh, inveterate nerd who's interested in everything um, and who loves to have really good conversations in public spaces with people about all kinds of subjects. Yeah, I think that people don't realize that your interest goes well beyond UFOs, that you've um, done quite a lot of other things, um, exploring consciousness, and you went on a retreat that I'd like to know more about. Um, you've done some with like meditation work, right? So I'd really like to know more about who you are, not just because it's a meme, but let's start at the beginning. Okay. So what brought you into this community in the first place? Yeah. So um, I, I would say I have a lifelong fascination with the unusual or um, the, the uncanny or the weird and this hasn't shown up in ways that I think are conventional. Um, and I say that uh, because I, I think it's important to know a little bit about my background to kind of understand how I showed up or where I came from and, and why I am the way I am. Um, so I was raised in basically a conservadox Jewish household. And I say this because I was raised um, not in a ideologically strict environment, but in an environment that adhered very closely to the laws associated with um, observant Judaism, which meant that I didn't watch television on Friday nights or Saturdays. In fact, I, I never really watched television at all, and I still don't. Um, and I also grew up in a house that was extremely, extremely focused on books and on learning. 
Um, and beyond that, what I studied and what I read about was completely at my own disposal. So I was like reading really strange stuff at a very young age and happily sort of provided books by provided uh, books from my parents. Like they would just sort of give me whatever I wanted to read and learn about. Um, and I have always been when I, I and I have lived many, many different lives. Um, I'm 36. Uh, I, I've had different careers. I've lived around the world. I, I've had extraordinary experiences, but sort of the unifying theme through all of them has been an insatiable curiosity about other people. I, I'm so fascinated by people individually, people collectively, the stories they tell, um, the sense-making they engage with, how they make sense of their experiences, their lives, um, the kind of collaborative myth-making um, we all engage with, and especially and particularly how humanity intersects with technology and all of its myriad forms. And that's really been kind of at the heart of both my academic and personal intellectual interests and even my professional career. Now, I don't, you don't have to tell us, but I, I am curious, sure. what is your professional career? <laughs> like, because you said data scientist, that could mean a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I, I always preface any conversation about my current career by talking about my first career, which is my real kind of calling and, and love, which by education and uh, professional training, I'm actually a rare book and manuscripts librarian. Um, wow. And I, uh, I studied at Indiana University's School of Information Science and Library Science, um, both, and also in their Institute for Russian and Eastern European Studies. So my, my formal graduate education is basically in rare book and special collections librarianship involving conservatorship, preservation, um, special collections with particular emphasis on Central and Eastern European languages. So my first career was uh, five or six years basically working on different fellowships and grants at different research institutions across the country, primarily focused on Yiddish, Czech, Hungarian, and Polish collections. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I bring this up because um, I now currently work basically doing strategic leadership in applied artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science. Um, you'll hear what I, I do called frequently like innovation or marketing science. It's a very kind of buzzy term, but what it really means is I generally will lead very uh, cross-functional teams of AI researchers, machine learning engineers, software developers, designers, data scientists, in developing innovative applications of data for different businesses to help them not only understand their business, but also to unlock innovative growth factors. Um, so what this really means, this is all very buzzy, right? Like I said, like I'm at a job interview. What this really means is um, I build, I lead the development and building of systems to help identify ideal audiences um, and build models that take in demographic and psychographic information um, of prospective customers or clients enrich it, and then surface individuals in those that group um, who may exhibit higher propensity to engage with or purchase a product. Um, so put another way, um, I kind of have led the development and building of a lot of these systems uh, that we see on things like Facebook or Google when it comes to direct targeted advertising and information delivery. Um, but I also want to say it's been extremely, extremely important to me uh, in developing this skill set and in working in this space to work in spaces and with opportunities that I believe are ethically defensible 
Um, so I've worked uh, in the fertility space, like helping people plan and have families. Um, I've worked in uh, risk analysis and like actuarial stuff in the insurance industry. Um, so like, I won't touch things like investment banking or, you know, quantitative finance, like, like right. I do have a little soul that I don't want to touch some of those industries, but yeah, that's, that's what I do. Um, and I, uh, I'm actually an independent consultant. I own a consultancy right now and, and work independently for myself, uh, with a small handful of clients. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. I think, um, that definitely gives me some insight into your interest in humanity, so to speak. Right. And yes. I feel like when we, when we work in UFOs, we're actually really in parallel studying humanity. Um, not only oh, yeah. how, how people act in the community, which is a fascinating thing on its own, but you know, the experiences people have trying to understand our own history, this goes well into your, um, your literature work because you know actually i'm fascinated by the common myths or i should say the the string that connects all religions you know that i keep finding um i just love delving into that and finding those connections so yeah i think that um you're definitely well placed i would be amused to find what you um have observed so far with the ufo community but before we get into that you still haven't answered how you ended up in the community. <laughs> right. So, so how I ended up in the community, um, like many things in my life actually connects back to, uh, Art Bell, um, the, the beloved and now deceased prior host of Coast to Coast AM. Um, like I said, grew up not watching television, but I'm a lifelong like radio person and loved Coast to Coast, grew up on it. And always had this, uh, you know, intense fascination, like I said, with the strange and weird. And um, I've been on a professional sabbatical or was on a professional sabbatical for much of this year and was working through archives of his shows and trying actually to write a book and develop like an archive uh, of resources studying him and his legacy. And I found myself in UFO Twitter spaces. Um, <laughs> uh, and this probably would have been in June or July. And I initially just had them on to keep me company because I lived alone and just wanted, you know, just some background noise and started contributing more to the conversations and pretty quickly befriended a handful of people in the community like Matt Monroe, um, who, you know, him and I became very close friends over a shared love of books. Um, and while my approach had largely been um, I would say through the lens of spiritual emergence and consciousness, it became very clear to me in participating in these conversations that that was very much a large facet of the ufology community at this point. And I had no idea. I thought everybody was still just talking about literal flying saucers. Um, and from there, it just pretty quickly snowballed. Like I, I made friends in this space, um, found other people that had similar interests. And, um, you know, I, I would I would characterize the last six months as one of the most uniquely intellectually rich periods of my life based on the community fellowship and connections that I've found within this space. It's really been intensely rewarding, much to my surprise. Um, I know. It's been wonderful. Yeah. It's really a mistake if someone just sees, for instance, like pictures of conference and they see the giant aliens and people wearing like little antenna, like <laughs> the things off their head and, and they just make all the assumptions 
they have no idea the intense intellectual um, activities that are going on behind that. Like, there's just so many people deep diving and studying like anthropology, psychology, engineering, you know, physics, quantum physics, you know, it's just bizarrely intellectual, actually. <laughs> I, yeah, like, when, okay, so when I came back from the October event, um, I, like, my parents must have thought I was at, like, a comic comic book convention or, like, wearing Spock ears with my friends. And, like, I'm talking to them. I'm like, no, no, like, we talk about consciousness, psychedelics, meditation, like, religious traditions. Um, and, and I love that quote from Jeffrey Kripal about how the study of ufology is effectively the study of everything. It's this extraordinarily interdisciplinary subject that touches on virtually every single subject as it pertains to humanity. Um, it's this extraordinary kind of rich vein um, that so many different disciplines and academics and lay researchers mine regularly through all kinds of lenses and experiences. It's, it's extraordinarily, um, it's much more sophisticated and rich than I think most people give it credit for. Yeah, I think that it is um, also very much so. And I was just thinking of another one, just, you know, an appreciation of history because the phenomenon has been a part of our history in many different ways for so long. It's, it's one of those common threads between everything. Um, for instance, um, there's someone was, was kind of making fun of me because I went to a bookstore in New York the day after the conference, mm -hmm. the second conference and Wait, found bookstore. I have to ask. Did oh, I, the strand it was or McNally Jackson. It was okay. a witch, a witchly bookstore. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Was it in the village? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Sorry. I'm like Pris a huge bookstore nerd. Yeah. So. Priscilla <laughs> could tell you, but, but like it was, it had a little bit of like, I have, um, 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 witchcraft slash magic shop, whatever you want to call it. Crystal shop in, in my neck of the woods that had a little bit more like actual things like tarot cards and stuff. But this shop was um, apparently um, famous or something. But yeah, ask mm -hmm. Priscilla, Quantum Witch. She'll tell you. <laughs> I will ask her. I, I, will, I will text her right after the show. Yeah, I was kind of just like going along for the ride. She said she was trying to get me out of my comfort zone. But it was a bad idea because I don't have great self-control. When I see something that was really exciting to me, I have really bad self-control. So Hey, they were making fun of me because I ran into a shelf of mythology books and they were not just like universal. They were by area and I had to oh, cool. get all of them. <laughs> like, right. so of course I'm on, I'm reading Africa right now and um, I have just like five, six, seven, actually they're right next to me. So I can show you afterwards. <laughs> um, Wonderful. Like, but anywho, so the the point is though, just I picked them up and I was just like trying to point out to everyone, look guys, see, even on the back it says giants. Oh look, see, this one also talks about little people. Oh look, this one's also going to talk about star people and sky gods. You know, so I really, I am more and more inclined to think either this phenomenon has been with us this whole time or it has been part of our stories since mm -hmm. our beginning so you know i think of humanity as at some point initially having been somewhat a small group where those mm -hmm. stories those seeds for those stories begin and 
we can only imagine either they definitely had those interactions or they created these stories together. So, yeah, that's where I'm at with that. I'm just fascinated to sew those pieces together to find those puzzle pieces. Yeah, I am. Um, I am deeply fascinated by the work of David Halperin, who's this professor emeritus out of UNC Chapel Hill. He wrote this book called Intimate Alien, and he basically looks at ufology um, basically through the lens of like the Jungian mythology and framework. And um, without categorically agreeing with all of his assessments, there is one point in his book where he talks basically about how um, myth or collective myth-making, the, the truth of it is immaterial, or the reality of it is immaterial because its truth kind of supersedes any reality that may actually exist, that it speaks to some sort of emergent, ongoing um, truth that exists almost in the substrate of human experience. And, and, you know, going back to your opening question about, you know, sort of how I found myself in ufology, I, I had had so much preoccupation with the subject of spiritual emergence and mysticism and transcendence. And as I was listening to and speaking with experiencers, uh, when I first kind of got involved in the community, I kept thinking to myself, oh my goodness, these people are talking about spiritual emergence. They're talking about these mystical experiences, but they're using a very different kind of language um, and framework to interpret these events. But what kept, what was so apparent to me is that they were speaking to experiences that have been recorded and mythologized and communicated across all of human history, across all religious traditions, across all cultures, all genders, all ages. Like this is, in many respects, this may be one of the most universal traits and characteristics across all of humanity. Um, and I think that that's sort of, when I think about what really compelled me to get involved in this community, it was that recognition, that sort of recognition of the universality of these experiences and how they're continuing to emerge and happen now. Like even in modernity, these aren't the events of 2000 years ago. It's not just Moses and the burning bush. Like we see stories like this emerge with Chris Bledsoe. We see it emerge with other people in the community and in the space. And um, we also see the same kind of collaborative storytelling and sense-making happening in 2022, as we've seen through all of human recorded history. Right. So anyone who's done um, some UFO research will find out that the phenomenon has reached us in a way that we understand. Um, Valet mm -hmm. thinks this is a trickster element, that this is a some kind of game that's played but you know at one point in time it was seen as airships um at one point in time i believe it was flying baskets at one point in time it was seen as shields um you know so on and so forth what we could understand is what we saw and it mm -hmm. followed us along and now we're at this really advanced point with technology and what used to be flying saucers in the 50s is now becoming more and more tic tacs and really interesting triangles and you know just which by the way is very similar to our own delta shaped jets right mm -hmm. um and and then so on and so forth it's it's becoming advanced along with us in that sense um however I, you know 
being that I have done research, I will say um, all of the shapes that are mentioned now have been mentioned all along in the last 70 years. Um, it's just that people are honing in more on that. Like more and more people are saying, oh, I saw a tic-tac-too. Um, however, the cylinder shape, the butane tank shape has been seen for mm -hmm. 70 years. So, you know, there, there's a few thoughts with that. Is it because we're redefining things, making maybe, I would hate to say this and get someone mad, a new testament for our faith, right? I, it's about mm -hmm. time, by the way. It's been like over 2,000 years. I think it's time for a third one. But anywho, <laughs> is it that? Or, you know, is something else going on? Is it like a guise is being used to try to communicate with us and to try to guide us like Valet thinks? What do you think is going on? Do you think the technology is changing the myth or the myth is following along with us? Yeah, so you touch on a theme here that I think is extremely fascinating, which is that what people report is always just out of reach of the extant technology of the of the current or of the moment of, of the experience or of the witnessed event. It's almost like it exists in the technological space that we are asymptotically approaching, but haven't yet touched. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I think that there are a constellation of different things um, and disciplines and views that underpin modern ufology, but I very much do see this as an emergent religion. And that's not a dismissal, that's not a value judgment, but I see this as a way for us collectively to reckon with and metabolize anxieties of our present moment, because humanity is very much facing some of the greatest uh, crises it has ever faced, like actual catastrophic and existential risk. And this is a um, lens through which we are able to um, sort of interrogate and explore these crises in a way that I think allows people to be in touch with the ineffable or the divine um, in ways that, again, like have existed throughout human history, but um, in sort of the ultra materialist modern framework, uh, we don't have good narratives for these experiences. So people kind of fall back into ufology or into, again, into this sort of emergent religious uh, view or practice. Um, but, but I also think it's, you know, I, I think a lot uh, or, or facets of ufology speak very much to the public imagination, particularly the kind of collective anxieties or fears that we have about technology or medicine or climate change, et cetera, um, where I don't suppose to have an opinion, um, but do think about is this tension between, is this something external is this something that's occurring externally to us and engaging with humans in all different ways through consciousness, through viewed experiences? Or is this some sort of outgrowth of um, like the collective unconscious, right? This is like very much kind of like the Jungian view of things that like ufology or these experiences um, are generated internally to humanity and then kind of projected outwards versus I think Valet's notion of the control system where this is another thing outside of us that sort of engages with humanity and nudges us in particular directions. Um, I'm, 
very interested in Terrence McKenna's view of this. Um, I, I love Terrence McKenna, um, always have. And I, I love his idea that we are sort of moving towards this omega point or this teleology and that UFOs or ufology are basically attractors in a complex system. So in that sense, what they do is they sort of push or guide complex system outcomes towards some kind of desired um, endpoint. And uh, that very much kind of dovetails nicely with Valet's theories of what's going on, that these are external events. Um, no idea who's actually at the wheel of them, of course, just kind of like anyone else, um, but that they are external to humanity and nudging or guiding us towards particular things. And in many respects like this, this is very much what's existed in all religious traditions or certainly all mystical traditions. This idea that uh, there's sort of a true reality beyond our current reality and that that is where sort of the guidance and path forward is to be found. It's not in sort of the materialist framework or the immediate reality that we experience. Yeah, I don't think that's any mistake that Rice put the UFO files in the religious studies. You know, I think that um, Diana Postolka was pretty clear that she thinks that we're, that's where it belongs in her book, American Cosmic. Um, and I think a lot of other people are having some revelations about that. They see a lot of parallels themselves um, between entities and angels, you know. The sure. con yeah, the concept of a messenger it goes to both, you know, religions and UFOs. They both have messengers, right? It's interesting also that the narrative from both tends to both be towards like do good, stop doing bad things. Mm -hmm. There's like a, a morality to both. You know, so one could write a book just on that alone and, and compare all stories too and see how that ties in. Um, because they all connect all the stories, all the religions connect ultimately to this as well. Um, I like they you can't you can't find a religion that, that doesn't talk about heaven, which is separate from earth, and which beings mm -hmm. are interacting with us, right? And some are some religions are even more obvious, right? Some of them say that they formed because of a ufo right like scientology um mm -hmm. which you know one could argue may not be the clearest religion but yeah i just i think there it's purposeful that that's where it's being studied i agree that part of that is you know we had transcendence for humans and both so i can see your point there definitely um so let's go to another question for you about that so you went on a retreat to work on your own, you know, personal mission. Could you please explain a little bit about the retreat? I, I love to talk about my retreat experiences. Um, I've actually spent a substantial portion of time the last six months on retreats. Um, the most recent one was a dedicated silent retreat uh, dedicated to the practice of embodied metta and the Brahma Viharas. So this is sort of like Buddhism or Buddhist meditation 101. Um, and it was um, complicated and difficult. And what I would describe as type two fun in the sense that 
when I got in my car at the end of the retreat, I distinctly thought to myself, I am never doing that again. This was like way too much. And then, of course, the next day I was sitting at my computer looking up when I could go on my next dedicated retreat. Um, and I, um, I, w- I went on this retreat um, and I work one on one with a Dharma instructor, basically like a meditation coach, not quite a guru, but someone who sort of guides my independent practice. I'm not affiliated with a particular lineage or tradition, but do take the study and practice of um, Buddhism and and meditation quite seriously, though um, I'm still very much in the process of discernment. Now, I bring this up, and how I think this relates to ufology is that you know, in the Western mindset, Buddhism is very much presented as this almost like, like, it's not a religion, it's a philosophy It's kind of like what everybody says about Buddhism. It's like saying the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. It's like the phrase everybody knows. But when you start getting really into Buddhism, and like, I'm super fascinated by like the occult and esoteric and like really mystical traditions here. So Vajrayana and Tantra, like, these are extreme the the underpinnings of these practices are deeply supernatural they're deeply mythological um and they very much speak to exotic and expanded states of consciousness altered states of consciousness um um, yes i have a copy of the vasudhi maga right here and this is basically like magic with a k for buddhism um And I I bring this up because, you know, there's almost this like Protestantization of Buddhism in the Western mind where it's all about like discipline and sitting silently. But um, we've seen the kind of sea change where people are increasingly interested again in these expanded states. So like we see more conversation about the jhanas, which are very much altered consciousness um, attained through meditative states. Um, We see... um, people like Daniel Ingram writing about the practice of fire casino, which is again, very, very much an altered and expanded state. And I I think that there's substantial overlap between these practices and what we in ufology will call heist or CE5, like the sort of broadening and expansion of the mind and consciousness in ways that facilitate contact, quote unquote, um, with other intelligences or other um, sources of information. Um, and again, you know, my, my kind of standard um, disclaimer in talking about any of this is that our language is so poorly suited to discuss the ineffable and the transcendent. So the best we can kind of do is talk about it symbolically and metaphorically. Um, but I'm extremely, extremely interested in these retreats as modalities to explore the depth and richness of um, realities that are far beyond kind of our immediate material experience. Right. So that's one of those things that stood out for me at the conference. It was mentioned um, that imagination may actually be used to convey information to us. And I was thinking about how important that was because when people meditate and the way I meditate is, is not, I wasn't trained I do it myself. I've been Mm -hmm. doing it for years. I gave myself a space that I went to. The space was sort of created already. I didn't, I wasn't really even able to change anything in it, which sounds really weird, right? Because then you have to wonder, is it imagination? What am I going to? It's it's a little bit like a cave, but it's not exactly a cave to just, I won't go Mm -hmm. into all of that right now, but 
Anywho, so when I go there, things happen that are really bizarre, right? And I'm not feeling like I'm controlling them. And I just go with it. Yes. That's part of meditation to just let it happen. And it reminds me of like when people talk about having like a DMT experience or like a trip or things like that. And But my experience is not negative like that. Although sometimes some messaging I get is really strange. But what's really bizarre also is that when I come back and relay that information to someone else, other people have had that experience as well. So that that's a mystery, right? That's a phenomenon in and of itself. Is that collective consciousness? I don't know, but I'd love to know like why it is that I had a meditation was told about a God source, which is not something I would have said in my day-to-day -day life because I was actually brought up Catholic and, you know, we didn't say God source. Anywho, mm -hmm. and then came back and other people were like oh yeah god source that's what we call god <laughs> you know like well how did we come up with it it's like where did this come from but anywho so yeah so when we go into those altered states are we accessing imagination or something using what we call imagination to convey something to us what do you think that's it's, it's a great question. Um, and it's like the idea of the muses, right? That's what I always think of when we talk about this idea of like, is this coming from us or is it coming externally? And we're just sort of the conduits through which these ideas pass. Um, the idea of the muses, of course, has been present through the Western cultural and artistic and intellectual traditions for hundreds of, year, hundreds of years. This idea that there are uh, usually beautiful women um, whispering to the creatives about how they should create, how they should develop these ideas. Um, we also see this, uh, I mean, the mathematician Ramanujan always said that the goddess Lakshmi was, was whispering in his ear about how to do different mathematical proofs. Um, I, I think that I think that modern society is so pervasively saturating in its stimulation of all of our senses at all times that it kind of keeps us in this super keyed up, excitable state from a neurological and like sort of CNS perspective, which in turn alienates us from the more subtle, bodily intelligence i mean like like i don't know any other way to say it um that exists this sort of somatic processing and output that um our body produces just by moving through the world and when we're in this meditative state um and we have uh, effectively stepped back from the hyper stimulation of modern life we're like the again this is all through symbol and metaphor because language just doesn't work very well for this but i've always likened it to dowsing in a way like when i sit in meditation and i clear my head i almost feel like a dowser in the sense that i feel like i'm like reaching out metaphorically um to feel for like the energies or the ideas that sort of exist just at the edge of my consciousness and to kind of feel like very deliberately focused on sort of being uh, receptive to whatever may arise 
Um, and we know, I mean, we know categorically the brain also just generates stuff. Like this is what John Lilly talks about hanging out in a float tank and like your brain just kind of like generates information constantly. But when we truly get into these meditative states, um, from an experiential perspective, um, I, I would say if you're doing it right, they're basically psychedelic without exogenous psychedelics. Like they, they tap you into and allow you to process parts of reality um, that are typically hidden or obscured just by virtue of, you know, having to just exist in the world. Um, and so I, I find the comparison to DMT or psilocybin or ketamine or anything else, completely apt comparisons that people make. The only difference, of course, is that you're kind of doing it yourself instead of relying on this exogenous substance to induce these experiences. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm envious, and I've said this to many people of yogis who just spent so much time just doing this, like just meditating. Oh, yeah. just like, and and their goal was not just to calm. Like people misunderstand, they're not just trying to calm. They're trying to reach out to something. Um, mm -hmm. They're trying to literally be enlightened, which means they're trying to obtain knowledge from something. So that's that's kind of what's happening to experiencers when they have instead of they don't call it muses anymore. They call it downloads now. Right. So exactly. Yes. A lot of parallels. So many parallels. Yeah. And I think like I think the other thing, too. And again, like I, I, I when I say it's sort of like a lot of ideas about meditation are so yoked to like, oh, I do mindfulness meditation and it helps me write better JavaScript or I'm like calmer at work. But the reality is that like when we're talking about these truly expanded and intense states, like there's intensity here. This isn't just like hanging out on a lounge chair trying to get your breathing under control. Th these are intense. Um, and I would even say for in many instances, traumatic, not in a painful or harmful sense, but they're traumatic in the sense that they... Um, the sense of ego dissolution, for instance, can be an extremely traumatic experience for someone who's unprepared. Um, and Daniel Ingram, obviously a very polarizing figure in the Dharma and Buddhist movement, like he talks about this with the classic kind of arising and passing away, that these are experiences that are simultaneously intensely pleasurable and meaningful and wonderful um, and extraordinary, but also have this like element of substantial trauma and kind of like we use the term ontological shock because all of a sudden and the entire kind of framework that we've used our, our entire lives culturally and socially and individually to interpret our world um, is kind of blown apart. And all of a sudden we have to sort of search around and find new methods of meaning and sense making. Um, and, and I think it, it also, um, I would say that I understand why people find these experiences deeply traumatizing too, because our current culture, our this sort of Western modernity, is ill-suited to navigate these experiences. There's no good cultural scripts for what happens when somebody experiences this and they want to talk about it. Yeah, it's funny. I will say there there are some common things that um all of humanity experiences that helps a little bit in opening the door to this conversation and that would be having an intense dream right so just like when we go into whatever's happening when we meditate which by the way some people say it could be more of a trance than a meditation so that's another thing to think about right it's um very like so if you have a dream that's really intense and you wake up and you're upset 
almost everyone has this happen, right? Because your brain has mm -hmm. prepared you so well for something or made you respond so much to something. It has provided so much material that you bring it out from that dream into your waking state. Um, and I've had some really interesting things happen with dreams. Um, and the people who study dreams, their, their only theory that I've seen since the last time I looked into it was that dreams are designed to help you in your waking state to prepare you, right? So that I think might be a bridge to have the conversation with other people um, who may not understand everything related to meditation experiences, maybe just to talk to them about their dreams. And, and if they've even had precognitive dreams, like almost everybody mm -hmm. has one. I've had several and I dreamt about three different pregnancies in my family and one was for twins and in in the case of twins i did it was going to be a boy and a girl why I, there was no point like that didn't help anything right. really but i had the dreams and i told the people and you know in the case of my sister i was accurate both times for hers so that was bizarre and i was okay so i'll just throw this out here a little bit of a curve on this I had a dream sure. that I was going to break my glasses and I woke up and I just talked about this on Twitter like two days ago. I woke up and I um, put my glasses on and then I pulled a sweater over my head. And of course, my glasses came down and fell. And here's the, here's the question, though. Did the dream cause me to break my glasses because I just assumed it was going to happen because of the dream? Like, I don't know. That's the, the question there. But nonetheless, the point is, it's it's a bridge for us to talk to people about these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody, you know, I think everybody, our lives are so enchanted with magical practice, but we don't frame it in that way. I think about that a lot. Like how much kind of ritual and magic permeates experience um like a good example would be like you know oh i'm wearing my my favorite shirt today to a job interview you know or i mean think about the ritual of like when somebody graduates and they move the tassel from one side of the mortarboard to the other like these are highly charged emotionally charged rituals and practices that we undertake even in 2022 and we don't call them magic we don't call them ritual but um, kind of like the, the arrow in the FedEx logo, where once you start paying attention to these practices, you realize just how saturated humanity is in sort of these mystical and enchanted behaviors. Um, we just tend not to assign them as mystic and enchanted behaviors. Yeah, I think that um, when people talk about <clears throat> pyramids, for some reason, every time I think of a pyramid, what comes to mind is the different sides of humanity's beliefs. I don't know why, but that's what it represents to me when I think of a pyramid. And it's like psychology, magic, and religion. And they kind of build up the sides of belief, right? Um, and magic has been in our lives forever, you know? And, and, mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe it's just been given a, a bad rap because people don't understand, but you're right. It's it. We've, some people call it superstition, but that's still magic, right? Or you know, mm -hmm. and and just 
you know, I'm just thinking of another example. When people get married, oh my God, if you tell them not to wear a wedding ring, they're going to flip out, right? Because right. magically having a ring on your finger means something. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's, it's symbolic. Um, and I'm personally, I'm a huge believer in the power, the monumental power of ritual and symbol, um, both for individual sense making, but then also for constructing relationships with other people. Like I think symbol and symbolism and ritual underpin and strengthen relationships, whether friendships or romantic relationships. And that's, you know, that's why we have things like wedding rings. That's why we have things like New Year's Eve. It's just like any other night, but the sort of symbolic energy of a new beginning is extremely powerful and compelling. And humans, like humans love ritual. Like, like we, we love all this. Like the NBA players will bounce the basketball three times before taking a free throw. Like, like this underpins yeah. so much of like daily activity and experience. And we don't let go of them easily. Now that you, now that I think about it, let's let's look at uh, you know the holidays that we're celebrating around this time, um, from winter solstice to Hanukkah to um, well Kwanzaa. I don't think is as old, but it is being celebrated also. And then um, Christmas, you know, all of those have been celebrated for such a long, 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 long time. You know, we just don't let go of those things. We hold on to them. Yeah, and, and they're syncretic. Like, when you look at the the ritual and symbolism associated with Christianity, like, this draws upon so many varied traditions and folds it into the practice and observance of the modern holiday. Um, you, you sort of when you look at these practices, you see them as emergent practices that have built upon eons and generations of various rituals and symbols that have been combined um, in very different ways across different cultures to get to what we have now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I like to remind people of winter solstice quite a bit <laughs> because technically, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, guys. <laughs> Just so you know, yes. like, pretty sure he wasn't. Uh, the The whole tradition was kind of stolen from the pagans. Okay, anywho, just wanted to throw that in there a little bit. Um, poor pagans. <sighs> so sad. Um, so, yeah, you're correct. We do just sort of ball it up. And you know what? I bet you if we gave it 2,000 more years, we'd be seeing more mergers we might have different names mm -hmm. for religions. Um, we might have a who knows what religion we would have in 2000 years, right? 2000 years would be very somewhat like we are today, though, I think. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think we just see, I mean, the, the religions that have continued um, are highly syncretic religions. So this would be like Hinduism or even Catholicism. Like look at Catholicism in, in like Latin America or Central America and you see the incorporation into folk religions. Um, mm -hmm. You see like, say for instance, like Santeria um, or you see, um, you know, I mean, even Buddhist practice kind of overlays on whatever the existing kind of folk traditions may exist in particular areas. Like you find this kind of merging and weaving together of different practices that basically allow established indigenous folk traditions or practices to co-evolve with whatever the latest and greatest uh, theology may be. And, and uh, I did take 
once upon a time back in college, a class about Asian art. And I remember my professor emphasizing how that those religions really impact art. So for instance, Shintoism really caused um, a lot of art to have a lot of lines between things. You know, there were, there were barriers because Shintoism is about containing spirits. And then there was uh, prana in India, the swelling mm -hmm. breath of life. So there, all the art in India has a lot of fullness to it, just like prana, you know. Yep. So it's, it's really interesting how, you know, people don't even notice that beliefs impact them and they don't even notice their art starts to replicate that. Um, you know, we see, you know, a lot of the art um, for Christianity, there's like halos, right? And that comes from mm -hmm. a lot of things, but it comes from also paganism with the sun god, Apollo. And that's why we have a halo over everyone. Everyone's got to be bright right. and shiny, right? And the people, you know, they put that in their art and they don't even realize it. It's going to be another thing that in 2000 years, people will look back and say, I wonder if they realized how their art was being impacted by their beliefs. So actually, you know what, people really, you, you know, this kind of ties into what you said earlier. People are really into to technology. And what is the art that we're seeing the most right now? We're seeing AI generated art. Right. People love it. They like, I mm -hmm. make it. It's so fun. You know, although I'm very picky, it takes me like 50 tries to get one I'll accept. But, <laughs> but yeah, we see AI, we see a lot of CG, like a lot of digital people have really moved away from, you know, painting and coloring, you know, for the most part. Um, because, you know, people just are embracing that. So in 2000 years, when we're on a different plane, People are going to look back and see, oh, see, they had their technological evolution around that time. Well, and I mean, think so much, and this is certainly, um, I think, has been accelerated over the last couple of years. So much of our lives are transferring to the immaterial or towards this sort of generated world. Um, if, if I were to get you know, you could talk about Guy Debord and the spectacle, how much so much of modern life and our media and art is oriented around the spectacle and exists in ways that are hyper individualized to cater to very particular specific niches. Um, it, I think and actually like a good example of this would be like in the 90s, listening to Coast to Coast AM uh, with Art Bell. Um, he would have a variety of subjects and guests on in the evenings. So if you were an Art Bell fan, you heard everything from Bigfoot to Bob Lear to um, to Bob Lazar to Bigelow to Ghosts, et cetera, et cetera. But now, um, if you listen to the radio, you can find a podcast that only focuses on Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest, and that is every single episode. So like, our, our kind of like media and artistic and cultural environments are becoming narrow and narrower that are in our scoped to the explicit and specific interests of the audience um, as well. So like we all are kind of the, the sort of artistic channels with which we engage 
um, become much more tailored to our particular identities and inclinations and tastes, but are also less commonly shared. They create less of a kind of common artistic or cultural experience that maybe we would have 50 years ago or even five years ago. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's going to be really interesting to see what our next step is. But <clears throat> I hate to say this, but Wally comes to mind often when I have this oh, yeah. discussion about how mm-hmm. technology has impacted us. And I and I have to say again and remind everyone that it was only about 200 years ago, if the, like not even really even that long ago, we were not electrically inclined we did not have you know video games and smartphones and you know everything oh my gosh alexa is talking to me right now that is creepy there you go alexa knows we're talking about her she's playing music do you hear the music i she's setting the mood what is this like okay so yeah we didn't have alexa 200 years ago so like the fact that we have all of that right now it's so weird that she's playing music anywho that we have all of that right now is just um a lot for us to get used to hold i'm gonna turn her off (laughs) hold on one yes i i I will respond and you turn her off um yeah i mean i i think that we our, our technological advancement very much has outpaced our sort of ethical and moral and philosophical and social evolution um we and i think like when i think about sort of what technology looks like over the next five to ten years to me it looks very much like us having to negotiate and renegotiate um our ideas of identity and agency and also make very real individual decisions about what it means to be a human in this world um, and how much we engage with or refuse to engage with technology. Um, speaking personally, and this this actually will probably surprise you, both you and a number of the listeners. So when I'm not sitting on Twitter or doing my invisible night school, I basically live like a 15th century monk. I have no smartphone or I, excuse me, I do have a smartphone. I have no smart home devices. Um, I don't use any streaming technology. I don't use anything like that. I refuse to use it. Um, And and I say that partly uh, because I'm deeply suspicious of the kind of surveillance capabilities of these tools, but also because um, I think one of the more pernicious and deleterious artifacts of technology in modern life has been engineering away serendipity. And I think serendipity is one of the most extraordinary and magical experiences we have. Um, And Amazon has developed algorithms that can perfectly attune themselves to exactly what kind of book I'd like to read it at a very particular time. But um, I'm much more interested um, in going to a bookstore and browsing the books and talking to the employee and finding exactly what seems to magically appear before me. Um, I, I think of uh, Hakim Bey, uh, definitely a, 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 a controversial individual, but he has this line where he says the universe wants to play. And I think that there's this 
playful side of serendipity and of human experience that so much of this technology has reduced down and flattened to just algorithmic processes. And I think so much of life and so much of human experience um, extends far beyond um, algorithms and systems into the sort of um, just magic of, of daily experience. I think the, uh, the problem is, well, you're right, you know, we're not morally mature enough for what we're doing, but it's going to happen anyway. That's the problem. Right. Yeah, like, the, we can't unring the bell. Right. And, um, you know, people talk about Neuralink a lot, but, mm -hmm. but excuse me. Oh, excuse Bless me. You. Thank you. Um, they talk about that, but they don't seem to acknowledge that Neuralink has competitors and some of those competitors are in human trials already. Like Neuralink is actually a little behind some of their competitors. So the process of us becoming more connected to technology, despite the moral consequences, like it, that, that horse has already been let out of the pasture. It's, it's gone. It's wrong. It's racing now. It, it, it certainly is. There was um, actually an article in Nature that I was reading just the other day about um, implantable biotechnology devices. So things that allow people to walk uh, who historically would not be able to walk or things that control people's cluster headaches or epilepsy. Um, people receive these implants that um, the providing company or biotechnology company then goes out of business and what happens? How do you manage the firmware updates on something that allows you to walk when the company's been out of business for five years? And sort of these, the kind of responsibilities that these companies have in creating and then subsequently supporting um, these tools in ways that um, are ethical and continue to assist the humans that have taken a risk on incorporating these technologies into their health and into their well-being. Um, and I do think, I mean, I think it was Heidegger who talked a lot about sort of the co-evolution of humans and technology that like at a certain point, we are going to co-evolve in the sense that technology is not just a tool that humans use, but that it is effectively woven into humanity. And I mean, technology is not just computer screens. Technology is the printing press. Technology is penicillin. Technology, there's a whole constellation of different things that constitute technology. Um, but it, um, it, in my opinion... Uh, I've talked about sort of this engineering away of serendipity, but I think the other thing that is extremely troubling about technology is how heavily yoked it has been to the extractive attention economy so far. Basically, how much technology has been developed basically to distract us from ourselves and from each other um, in a way to create wealth. Um, and I mean, we all walk around with devices in our pockets that are effectively uh, neurochemically addictive. They deliver dopamine uh, at infrequent and sporadic intervals in ways that make us addicted to them, the same way people get addicted to gambling or uh, any other behavior. Um, and they have deeply affected the cognitive processes and attention capacities of people at a time when, very frankly, um, 
we are facing monumental challenges and difficulties. We, we, we can't have distracted geniuses right now. We need people that have attention spans that are able to dedicate themselves to solving very hard, very complex and very important problems. Um, and I am, um, it, it's something that I think about very frequently because of course, you know, I use some of these systems and even work in some of them. But on the other hand, um, I, I, I think that collectively, if we are to fully leverage technology in a way that is beneficial to humanity, we also have to fundamentally refactor how we optimize it and what kind of systems we have in place and what the objectives of those systems are. I think, unfortunately, just the, the same issue that you just mentioned, money is going to keep morality out of that unfortunately like i'm it's sad but it's true like people oh. are gonna say yeah they're not gonna want to sure. stop um they had a documentary that came out about how social media impacts our youth um they talked about how it increased suicide rates and lowered mm -hmm. confidence for young girls um for instance and you know you could i i can say you know when I work with my clients, I can see the differences um, in how they're impacted because of social media. I saw sort of like the evolution of YouTube. I've been doing, you know, work mm -hmm. with clients for so long and then how that impacted people and kids are exposed to things they really shouldn't be exposed to. And they're leaving themselves open to things that they shouldn't be leaving themselves open to um, in ways that, never has happened before so yeah there's huge cultural impacts but money is going to keep it going um there's nothing that i can see that's going to put that horse back in the pasture so to speak and um yeah i i just i know that's sad to say but one thing that comes to mind and i'm going to bring this back to ufos because <laughs> sure. we have because i know people it's... listening to this are going to be mad we weren't just talking about that the whole time was that the the race that's going on is leading us closer and closer to the story of what the ufo is and what it does for instance the richest people on the planet all go into space you know they're all building their own little mini enterprises you know and trying mm -hmm. trying to build little you know habitats elsewhere um um, what was it that Bezos wanted to talk about when he was talking about the future in space? Us leaving the planet, right? Um, right. And then, you know, Bigelow, who's extremely fascinated by, you know, the phenomenon. What is he doing? He's patenting things that are being used in space now um, mm -hmm. and that have to be used by some, I think, the International Space Station and like other things have to use some of his patents now um so i i think that's telling right that we're reaching for the same thing that we're talking about we're intrigued by it and we're doing it ourselves now historically drones have actually been around a lot longer than people think um mm -hmm. people it, just do a little bit of research you'd be surprised and they actually can last a lot longer than people think. But the fact that now we're at a point where you could even have a drone in your own house, you could create drones that lift you up off the ground if you wanted to, right? 
you know deliver your amazon packages right i know that's we <laughs> not only looked to it but we created it and uh, like star trek is slowly happening you know all of those things are happening i don't think star wars will happen though i don't think we're going to get really good lightsabers i'm sad to say but i you know i think i'm sure we'll get plenty of other nice uh energetic weapons instead uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i just i think that we're we saw it we dreamt it and then we started to become it and it makes me wonder sometimes why and it makes me think about the control system idea and it makes mm -hmm. me wonder even if there's something embedded in our DNA that leads us on that path. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, oh boy, there's there's so much I could say about this. Um, one of and I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit off the ranch here. I, I'm actually and I'm actually working on a, a very long form writing piece about this about how our visions of the future have changed so dramatically over the last 20, 25 years, where when you look at kind of the early 2000s, late 90s, there was a highly democratized vision of technology and the internet, um, sort of the golden age of the internet in many respects. And it now seems to be that the vision of humanity's future is largely within the purview of a very small handful of wealthy people, that the sort of collective imagination has been shrunk down to the particular preoccupations of a handful of people. The, the future imagining is no longer a collective thing. Um, but I also think that um, we are a Western culture is a culture that is has a strain of colonization and exploration at its heart. I mean, our greatest stories tell stories of colonization, exploration. They underpin the Western canon. They underpin the Western sort of religious tradition and philosophical tradition. It's definitely um, not just Western. Definitely just oh, it's, human. It's, it's, it's definitely human. But I mean, the way we see it right now, like in our current moment, speaks to mm. this sort of Western preoccupation. Like it's Bezos, it's Musk. Um, actually, uh, Tito, I think, whatever his name was, um, actually, he went to RPI, where I went to school. He was the first space tourist because he spoke to one of the graduating classes when I was there. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that what I do love, um, or sort of the optimistic part of me that does love part of this, uh, because I think I do have serious reservations about it. But what I do love is that it speaks to at the heart of humans is our desire to do hard things. That like, we are a species that loves to do complex, hard, difficult things, because in many respects, those are the things that are the pinnacle of human experience and achievement. And I feel like, you know, we are living in this, this incredible liminal time right now, um, where we're starting to see AI emerge on a scale that's accessible and approachable for the average person. Um, there's certainly tremendous amounts of growing pains associated with it. But um, it's, it's becoming very, very clear that our technological trajectory is already very, very well underway. 
you know, in many respects, it's almost like the Tao where um, we can keep trying to fight it. But like you've said, you know, the horse is out of the barn, it's already on its way. And so the best thing we can do now is to arrive in those spaces with integrity and compassion and care for others. And in a way that's aligned to, you know, moral and ethical standards that not only help ourselves, but help others usher in this new age of humanity. Okay, so let's do a fun little thought experiment because sure. going back to UFOs again. So let's pretend, <laughs> if you will, some people are going to get mad that I said it that way, but that there's uh, another species on another planet. I imagine they would have, because we like to, um, you know, humanize them, uh, imagine yeah. they would have gone on a similar path. Um, in fact, there's um, someone who uh, talked about stages of, civilization i did not try to memorize them but advancement yeah like um, class one class two. yes yeah, exactly yeah. i've never tried to remember i'm i can't even memorize hynix classifications i'm just like <laughs> i know they're there if i need them i'll go find them but um so yeah if i imagine that there's a trajectory and if an advanced civilization has been able to come to find us which some people say it has right um and -hmm. i say some people because i really try to keep the door open on what's going on um then i imagine they went through the same thing right they went through a burst of understanding a desire to explore then set out to do so um probably using technology and ai like we do um and i should add you know technology also includes let me try to be careful about this um, biological technology, right? Because mm-hmm. some people definitely think these entities are a mix of technology and biology, but we also mm-hmm. have biological robots being built now by our scientists. Um, so I imagine that if it's within the realm of our possibility, it would be in the realm of another species possibility. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this this goes back, um, uh, and I'm certainly not meant to be dismissive, but yes, of course. Um, I mean, this goes back to what I said about humanity co-evolving with technology, where at a certain point, um, the two fates become totally knitted together. And I would expect the same to be true of any sufficiently advanced civilization, uh, certainly any civilization that would be capable, like, look, like we're working within the container of like, okay, life on another planet coming to earth, right? Like this is already a thought experiment, but I feel like um, it's a completely realistic expectation to believe that there would be a full intermingling between both biological and technological systems uh, at that state of civilization. Right. So that's kind of where we, I think we're right on the edge of that now. And Mm -hmm. like, and I've commented on this on Twitter and I try to let people know this is happening. I, you know, I've even shown people the UFO that you can buy now. It's essentially a large drone. Like you can get into Mm -hmm. it and fly it around. Um, It's a thing guys, look it up. Like these are real things. Um, So I just think knowing all that, and knowing also that the government has said that UFOs are real, why 
do we just all always feel like we're having to fight for this so hard and explain it so much? Like, cause it's, why is it so hard for the rest of the world to just say, well, that makes sense. It's why does our brain shift things over to a, well, that's logical for some things, but when we talk about UFOs, the brain just goes back and like, no, that can't be logical. What is that? Like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, here's another example. Mm-hmm. every like we find multiple new species every year right species that people didn't even know existed um on our own planet but if i tell people that they're just like eh, okay that's totally logical if we were to find what people called an alien species just adding that word alien suddenly like people are like no no way <laughs> what what happens there with the human brain that they can't merge these things you know, that's, um, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I, I think that there is this sense, this, this kind of popular sentiment that we understand or have explained or have made sense of most of our world. Right. Like it's in many respects, like I would call this like almost like scientism, like this, this idea that science has sort of explained everything. And now it's just down to minutia. But um, I think the opposite is true, which is that we only know the tiniest fraction of tiny fractions at this point. I mean, the, the germ theory hasn't even been around for more than a couple hundred years. Penicillin is new. um, X-rays are new. The internet is new. Um, And I think that, you know, the, the, the conventional understanding is that, no, we, we've understood everything. We've discovered all the animals there are to discover. We, we've explored everything. Science explains everything. And so it almost, I think, imparts, uh, again, that term ontological shock to have to confront that actually, like, the limitations of our knowledge um, like we're extremely limited in our knowledge and in our understanding, not only of our immediate surroundings, but of the cosmos. Um, we, we are only beginning to get but the faintest of glimpses at what's actually going on out there. And um, I, I think that, you know, I, I could say something about who I think most people are pathologically averse to discomfort. They're pathologically averse to confronting ideas that fundamentally undermine their sense of reality or their, their sense making in the world. And these are self-protective mechanisms, both cognitively and, you know, psychologically. Um, but that it requires an expansion of belief that is outside of, um, I would say, mainstream culture where it's perfectly acceptable for people to believe, say, in divine intervention, but for some reason, the belief in alien life is a bridge too far, even though the sort of, to me, they feel like logically continuous. Like they feel kind of like, if you're going to believe in one, you may as well also believe in the other. Or they don't seem it's too disparate. I see that too. Yeah, it's the same thing. I know. It's so weird. Like someone will go to church on Sunday and talk about, you know, you know, someone walking on water and angels coming down from the sky, passing messages, and then turn around the next day and go, oh, no, no alien is talking to you, my friend. 
Oh no, right. you did not see a floating alien walking around. Oh no, you did not. <laughs> like, well, and this is yeah, and this is like when we so like at the start of the conversation we were talking about. Okay, is ufology kind of an emergent religion? And I think that when you say that, that can raise the hackles on people. Like they can be very offended by that characterization. And, and I'm like, it's it's like no, like like we humanity is imbued with this sense and fascination and love for the mysterious and religion speaks to that just like ufology speaks to that it just uses different language to do so um i mean where where i get where i kind of get mucked up um is less in people's beliefs and more in sort of the thought processes that underpin them um and i and I and I think that that sort of points to what you're saying, where it's like, okay, these beliefs are very similar in the sense that they are unfalsifiable and unprovable at this current point in time. Like they exist outside of like the outside of the scientific method or empirical interrogation, um, and, but they require some kind of uh, like literal faith or personal belief that may be founded on personal experience or social connection or context or anomalous experience. But the point is that um, there has to be this sort of intellectual and spiritual spaciousness to allow for things that exist outside of our um Comfort scientific now. or rationality yeah like the the rationality that tends to underpin like conventional views and mindsets it's so strange though really like when oh, you it's read... totally logically inconsistent it's completely inconsistent yeah like we've we've had like i've had discussions with people where i've, I've tried to explain even your, your your bible doesn't say angels had wings and they'll get upset about that too like, mm -hmm. this is a super religious person, but their belief added on to that, like, suddenly angels have to have wings. They can't let it go. <laughs> it's, yeah, and I mean, these are, like, these are, these are beliefs and ideas, mu again, much like ufology, where people's, um, people are deeply personally invested in this subject based on personal experience, based on trauma, connection, et cetera. So there's always this, um, not always, but frequently this dynamic of um, personalizing, like a, a sense of personal woundedness when these ideas are called into question or interrogated. Um, but like, I, again, I, I think the other thing too is when we look at experiencers, if you were to take the average experiencer and frame their experience in um, language that is religiously coded, so like language or terminology that, you know, is used by Roman Catholicism or Judaism, and you had them explain their experience to a priest or a rabbi or a deacon, they would likely look at these experiences and assign some kind of mental health status <laughs> to the person recounting this experience. However, um, when we look at, say, some of the ecstatic or evangelical traditions like Pentecostalism, where this sort of ecstatic shared experience is very much part of the religious experience, um, if you were to address these experiences up with the language of the Pentecostals, they would see it as just part of the living faith. Like this is part of the, the word of God. And I, and I think, again, this just speaks to sort of the continuity of these experiences throughout human history. Um, and it also speaks to, you know, our, 
even our religious institutions like the mainstream ones are very much still under the umbrella of this sort of, I mean, I don't want to say the cult of scientism because that's the kind of thing that will get me a lot of angry direct messages on Twitter. Um, but like very much under the purview of literal materialist interpretations of reality, like without the sort of spaciousness that at any other point in human history has been present to interpret and understand these events, whether ufology or contact events or experience or phenomena. So I think, I think one of the hindrances here, although there could be a benefit to people embracing the concept of ufology as a religion is that religion has such a lot of negative <laughs> baggage, you yes. know, like oh, not only yeah, it's been so divisive. It's been used to manipulate people. It's been used to kill people. Um, you know, I I have a, a really dark understanding of things that have been done in the name of religion. And I think that's why people are like, I don't want that to be attached to this. And then, of course, there's the nuts mm -hmm. and bolts crowd, of course, as well, who would argue up and down that uh, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of trace and physical evidence of UFOs, and they, that it has nothing to do with belief, you know, because they, they see it, sure. they touch it, they have evidence of it, you know, so that, that's another kind of hindrance. But I think those two obstacles will not change the fact that people might be writing that Third Testament one day, and it might mm -hmm. involve... UFOs and aliens or ultra terrestrials or whatever you want to call them, interdimensionals, you know, that might just be a part of the future for us. So people might want to get ready to write that book. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, people are already writing those books, right? Like we, we see early kind of UFO religions emerging. Um, mm -hmm. But they, you know, like creating, I think, like a codified shared view. I mean, I always... Yeah, I, I, I'm so fascinated by this subject um, as emergent religion, but I, I also think that it's not directly contradictory to like the pure nuts and bolts approach. I think these things can happen in tension and in complement to one another. Like you can have, all of these things can be true, you know, or all of them can, can be interrelated without threatening the other. Yeah, it's definitely... Another example of how we just have to leave everything on the table, right? Exactly. And, and, and you know, is it really harmful for someone to have a belief, um, to believe strongly? Like, I, I feel like in my personal experiences, my connection with God probably got stronger, right? I don't think that's necessarily a, an offensive concept, <laughs> you know, that um, my meditation experiences, like, yeah, God source. I mentioned that earlier. Like that mm -hmm. wasn't something like prayer and meditation are pretty much the same thing if you really break it down um, mm -hmm. in many ways. Uh, and intention is mentioned in both. C5, meditation, religion, intention is a big part of all of it. So yeah, I don't think it necessarily has to be a bad thing. Um, I think if... <laughs> stigma oh my gosh that's a thing that really attacks attaches to everything right it attaches to religion ufos all of the above yes yeah and it you know it like at the heart of it too whether we're talking about religion or meditation or intention or magic is like to me at the nucleus of this is this idea that our experiences 
are so informed and shaped by our consciousness. Um, and that doesn't mean that there is a linear transactional process of, oh, I wish something happens and it happens. But it does, I think that there is something for many people um, th th that we have much more agency over our experiences than we'd like to believe. Um, and I think that that can be deeply troubling to some people who do not want agency, who want kind of the ability to either um, view themselves as at the mercy or the victim of circumstance or whatever. Um, but I, I, I do think that all of these traditions speak to the malleable nature of reality that can in turn be adjusted or transformed just by virtue of conscious engagement and practice. So I, you know, I was going to say that I do think that one day if we could just accept ourselves as humans fully, you know, we would allow room for all of this, like this discussion yes. that we've had today. If we could just accept instead of like having to put so much pressure on each other to to follow other people's beliefs or, you know, I, I think then we'll maybe reach that advanced civilization idea that we really want to reach. And that would be the dream, right? To be advanced. Yes. I, yeah, I will tell you an example of how I realized we were advancing when Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the thoughts that I had, and I couldn't help it, was, do people still do that? Why are people still doing Are we not over this yet? This invading each other thing? Like, can't we move on from that? And maybe that's a more advanced thought coming from me that's not the rest of humanity, of course. But I think other people had that feeling, too, that can't we get past this? Like, can we move on, please? This is not what we should be doing. Um, so I think there's some hope that we're going to get there. And I think when we look at youth nowadays fighting so hard to get rid of like labels and limitations mm -hmm. and be fluid, and they're coming up with that, and they're pushing it yes. towards society, that, that we might reach this point where we're just letting people be themselves. Yes. Yeah, it, it, I agree. And, and I think, um, I mean, like to connect this to ufology, it's, it, everything important ties back to ufology, right? Um, is um, the process of discernment or of sense making is ongoing. It's never complete. You know, like we, like I, I would say sort of my only deal breaker in conversation with anybody on this subject is somebody who proclaims that they have the answers. Um, and instead, I, I think having this spaciousness and grace to accept the dynamic nature of, of understanding and idea formation is essential. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I mean, to 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 the the testament to our current moment, like we do seem to be entering a period where 
the varieties of human experience are much more well-received and accepted than they have been. And I think that this is very much a function of a number of things. It's a function of the psychedelic renaissance. It's a function of um, the rise and kind of... Um, kind of ambiguous spirituality where people are picking up things like meditation or different kind of consciousness exploration practices that are unyoked from traditional dogma or practice. Um, and I think the more our cultural narratives shift to acknowledge and accept the complexity of identity and ideas rather than simply reducing them to sound bites and labels, um, the more kind of broad, honestly, healing that we see culturally and socially and in turn makes safe for people to be their kind of fullest selves. So there's a couple of things I wanted to sort of end on a little bit because I know I've, I've gotten you way over time <laughs> but I wanted to <laughs> that's okay yeah this is what usually happens so okay so first of all I wanted to say going back to what you said about we create our reality more than we realize which is sort of like a Jungian idea I, I'm just going to say you know I think psychology would kind of agree that but in, in instead what they say is our brain controls what we see in reality, mm -hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's really an interesting thing, and I hope people will explore that more, and maybe we'll get to explore that more in the future. And then about just like this level of acceptance that we're hoping for, I think that's really, you know, it's almost like people talk about white privilege, and they talk about privileges of the rich and like you know they get to do what they want and stuff like that but it's also just like in general the western civilization has the privilege and room to do this now when mm -hmm. if you look back even just 200 years ago people were really struggling to make it you know to breathe and now you know we take things that have to do with our survival for granted like we have refrigerators and ovens and most of, well, uh, I would say a lot of people have shelter, would like it to be everybody, but, you know, I'll get in trouble for pushing mm -hmm. what people call socio sociological ideas, but whatever. Anywho, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not super political, but I just think people should have homes. Anywho. Uh, <laughs> can, can you imagine we live in a moment where that belief is considered political? I um, know. That's well, so uh, people can hate message me. I have no problem with that. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's so sad to me. I just don't understand. Um, yeah, again, more advanced society, we would be making sure everyone has homes. Just so you know, anyone who's listening who wants to be more advanced, get people some homes. Okay. Star Trek <laughs> is a socialist future, Deb. Um. Okay, well, you know what? It's a good point. You know, it makes me want to go back and rewatch all of Star Trek. But, um, <sighs> sigh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so yeah i think um we have room to do it now we have the privilege to mm -hmm. do it now because we're our survival ha for the most part has been reached if something happens to derail that all of this will go backwards again unfortunately although some people say crisis makes people fall on their faith blah 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 right but i don't know i think that we have room to really spread our wings a little bit more now in a way we wouldn't have been able to do 200 years ago. And um, 
it just so happens that when we spread our wings, technology is coming with us now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I should um, say spreading our UFO signs. I don't know. <laughs> yes. For, for Since this is audio only, I just want to say Deb is doing her best UFO impression. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, yeah. It, I mean, this is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs type stuff. Like, like we all like once we provide for sort of the basic safety, physical safety, uh, food, shelter, well-being, um, that is when we create the space for people to truly um, deliver beautiful, remarkable, innovative technologies and ideas and artwork to the world. Um, and I think, you know, it's we have the resources to make an extraordinary world for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's it's always a question of um, the responsibilities we have to our fellow man in the pursuit of humanity's highest attainments. Can you imagine if we just made everyone a nice solid house, right? Mm -hmm. We have enough of a we have enough space on this planet to do that now, right? We made everyone yes. a nice solid house and made sure everyone had food. And then everyone could just sit around and meditate and make art and read books. Oh, God. I mean, I, I think all the time of the extraordinarily brilliant and talented and powerful people that I know um, that can't act on their extraordinary brilliance and talent simply because they have to be at a job that, you know, gives them health insurance you know, something like that, or because they need to keep a roof over their kids' heads. Um, it, it makes me wonder just how much the, the next Albert Einstein may be flipping burgers at a McDonald's only because that's their only path to keeping a, a roof over them and their family's heads. And I, I think all of us benefit when we provide the opportunity for everyone unequivocally to um, perform as their highest selves. Like all of us benefit from that. It's not just the individual. Yes, that's what it's going to look like if we reach the highest advanced civilization I, requirements. I, I like this vision of the future, right? Like, I it's funny, I can get so cynical about this, but like talking with you about this kind of reminds me of almost like the golden age of, of futurism, right? This idea that future, the future vision of technology can, can and should benefit everybody. It should not just be the purview of a, a, a select few while the rest of us toil away. We, we can have the vision, we can have the beautiful visions of the golden age of science fiction. It doesn't all have to be Philip K. Dick future. Right. Well, and I'm just going to throw in a couple things for people to think about for that, because I've said I was going to conclude, but I could not. Okay. So <laughs> first of all, I've once saw someone say that the entire population of the entire planet could fit in one state in the United States if everyone stood up elbow to elbow um we could all fit in one state so there's enough space i'm tired of people saying we're overpopulated the entire world is not overpopulated some cities some countries may be a little bit overpopulated some regions might be a more mm -hmm. accurate way of saying it but the world has enough space for everyone and we have enough space for everyone to thrive in we have enough food on this planet if we take care of this planet and we can become an advanced civilization too. And if we 
want to dream about UFOs and advanced civilizations and superior beings who only want us to, you know, be part of the galaxy and interact with, you know, whatever, <laughs> then, then maybe we should strive for that. <laughs> yes. I, I like your vision of the future, Deb. Right. So let's 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 just leave that out there, little breadcrumbs for listeners who hear this, just like little kids hiding under a bed sheet listening to Art Bell when they were kids. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so thank you so much for coming and talking to me. I want to show you these books. So I gotta wrap it up here. Can you tell everyone um where it was um or where it is that they can see you? Sure. Yeah. So I host the Invisible Night School. You can find us on YouTube. Just search the Invisible Night School. We broadcast live Wednesday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can also find me on Twitter at Leah Prime, L-E-A-H-P-R-I-M-E. Um, and you can also subscribe to my Substack. I'm uh, going to put a plug out there since the uh, structural integrity of Twitter seems <laughs> a little dodgy lately. Um, and that is also leahprime.substack.com. I talk about everything from complexity science and complex systems, uh, ethical and humane technology, psychedelics, consciousness, and of course, UFOs. Deb, thank you so much for having me on this evening. It was great talking to you. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to bring you back because I didn't even get to ask you about some of the psychedelic stuff, and I'm fascinated by that. (laughs) So, okay, so, you know, that's just one of many topics we could be talking about. But thank you for coming to talk to me today. And for the people listening, thank you for listening. Um, this is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo for the Calling All Beings um, podcast network. I'm going to go practice being a UFO a little more. And you can reach me at Study of UAPs if you need to find me. I'm also part of UAP Medical Coalition. Um, you can also find me at ufoconnector.com um, on Calling All Beings on YouTube and all over social media at Study of UAPs. If you need me, Come find me. Take care, everybody. Bye.